God is good? And all the time? Well, wasn't that great to see all those, uh, hear those testimonies and hear the stories of how God changed life? Even in the midst of a pandemic, God is still working. Aren't you excited for that? That is awesome. And so if you missed last uh, Sunday night, we had our outdoor service and baptism service. I'm thankful uh, for Carlos who put that together so all of us could uh, kind of celebrate what God is doing. I'm going to invite you to turn to Judges chapter number 6. All right, Judges chapter number 6. And uh, I want to just uh, let you know we're, we're finishing our series today, Gideon. The title here, Gideon, When Life is Bigger Than You. Now, we're coming to the season, right, where, where uh, you, you've, you're being told your, your vote matters, get out and vote. And I agree with that 100%. But the truth is, your vote doesn't always matter to everything, okay? So last night, I, I put on social media this wonderful picture of myself and asked you to vote. Some of you aren't on social media, so you haven't seen that. And so uh, 62% said that I should not keep the mustache, all right? And, but let me just be completely honest with you. It really didn't matter what your vote was. There's only one person's vote that matters, right? It's mine. No, no, no. <laughs> it's my wife's, and so she said, uh-uh. So, anyways, just so you know, all right, uh, this clean shaven today. All right, Judges chapter 6. Let's move on. All right, Judges chapter 6, and uh, we've been talking about the life of Gideon. And as we talk about the life of Gideon, it seems like in three chapters, we see this recurring theme that has been a pattern of the nation of Israel for years and years and years. We've talked about that, right? And I, I think in our own lives, we often fall in the same patterns, maybe to a different degree. But we see the pattern all throughout the Old Testament of the nation of Israel that they would fall into disobedience. God would most oftentimes uh, judge them through a pagan nation. And so we see uh, disobedience led to judgment. Then the judgment, when the, the Israelites had enough, they would repent or they would cry out to God to rescue them. God would rescue them and then bless them. And then what would the nation of Israel almost always end up doing? Going back to disobedience. And the cycle would just continue. Disobedience, judgment, uh, repentance, and blessing. And over and over and again. And I see that pattern in my life often as well. But when we think about the book of Judges, and, and this Judges speaks to a couple different things. First is, it's a book in the Bible. It is also a period of time. It is also a title. So Gideon was a judge. A judge would be called from God uh, to really call for repentance. That judgment is coming if you don't repent. And, and it also is a period of time. And this period of time in which this book was written was between when Joshua and, you know, Moses, and then there was Joshua, and then we have the period of the judges, and then it would be Saul, where we now have uh, a united kingdom. And so in this period of time, and, and specifically now, and what we're going to read about Gideon, is about 100 to 120 years before uh, Israel asked for King Saul to be their king. Okay, so just kind of giving you the timeline. So let's look at Judges chapter number 6, and a lot of this is going to be review, but I think it, it is good for us to set up the story. Maybe some of you, this is your first uh, Sunday in the series. If most of you are like me, you kind of forgot what everyone said last week anyway, so we'll, go, we'll kind of do a quick review, and it's going to set us up for just to give a few, uh, three points of application as we think about this. So as we read through this story, I want you to kind of think in it for yourself. 
How, how could this story of Gideon personally apply to me? And then again, we want to think about this cycle. But also, I want you to think from the perspective of how could this story and the, the life of Gideon also apply to us as a church? All right, so uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And, and here we see the first two steps of the cycle, don't we? Disobedience led to judgment, that our choices have, have consequences. Now look at verse number 6. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of Midian, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So here's that third step in this cycle, right? So got disobedience leads to judgment, and now we have, they're crying out to God. God, save us. And then we, we read in like verse 10 and 11 there, verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the tree and talked to Gideon. So here, God hears the cry of the people. Now he's going to choose Gideon to be the judge to help deliver the nation of Israel. Uh, and then you see in verse number 12, God talking to Gideon says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And, and so God says, you're a warrior. Gideon did not see himself as a warrior. That first week we talked about the fact that, that uh, God often chooses underdogs. And God's not looking for you to be the hero of the story. He's looking for you to point to him as the hero of the story. And so uh, Pastor Haley talked about that last week, uh, talking about how that God often uses normal, ordinary people for God to do extraordinary things. Why does he do that? The scripture is very clear why he chooses average Joes. It's because he wants us to give him the glory. All right, now let's keep reading. So look at verse number 16. It says, And the Lord said to him, again, he's talking again, Surely I will be with you. You shall defeat the, uh, the Midianites as one man. And so God is giving this promise. Gideon, I promise. I know you don't feel worthy. I know you don't feel big. I don't know. You don't feel like a warrior. But with me, all things are possible. Gideon still kind of doubts, and even doubts, is this even an angel of God? Is this actually who I'm talking about? Could you give me a sign? The angel, remember, burns up the sacrifice, and Gideon's like, oh, okay, I guess you are God. And, and, and so the story continues on, and, and remember what Nathan talked about two weeks ago, that God asked him to go destroy the image of Baal. And Gideon, like us, was a little fearful. So isn't sometimes the next step of faith that God asks us to take just a little bit fearful? For some of you, a few weeks ago, you, you took this big step of faith. I'm going to start, I'm going to start giving a percentage on purpose, and you signed the card, and you're like, I'm, I'm going to give. For some of us, the next step of faith, maybe that we're just going to get involved in a connect group next Sunday, and I'm going to walk out in the atrium after church, and I'm going to sign up, and I'm going to, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to try to meet new people and connect to God and to other people on a deeper level. But I love the statement that, that Nathan gave us two weeks ago, that, that fearful obedience is still faithful obedience. And I would contend that I'm not sure how much faith anything takes if there's not a little fear involved. And so he is fearful but still faithful, and he goes and he tears down the false, the image of the false God. And then he has more doubt. As God is giving him the plan of the battle, Gideon's like, well, hold on a second. Remember, he puts the fleece out, and, and, and God does exactly what he says, and then what does Gideon do? He's not, okay, yes, God, no, remember what he said, God, God, don't be mad at me. I know you've already given me two signs, but... But let's reverse this idea of the ground being wet and the fleece being dry. And could you do the reverse? And God 
does it again. And so Gideon then's like, okay, I guess, I guess I'll do that. And then Gideon calls in chapter 7, verse 1, he, he gives the battle cry, the trumpet sounds, and 32,000 men from the nation of Israel, they, they respond. We're going to go to battle. We're going to defeat the Midianites. And understand there's 35,000 who re- responded to the call to battle, but there are 135,000 from Midian. Still, the odds aren't very good. It's four to one. But Gideon is excited. I've got 35,000 men, and what does God say? It's too many, because if I let you go to battle with this many men, the 32,000 men, you are going to take the glory. You're going to take the credit. And they get down to 300 men. 300 men versus 135,000 men. The odds went from four to one to 450 to one. 450 of the Midian soldiers against one Israelite soldier. The odds don't seem very good, do they? Not only that, look at the weapons they, they, that God tells them to go to battle with. All right, turn a minute to chapter 7 and verse number 20. All right, 720, it says, Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, and they held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hands. Do you see what their weapons are? A torch and a trumpet. 300 men versus 135,000 men without their swords. It says, They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands and for blowing, and they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia. God delivered them with 300 men and no weapons. And, and we read there in, in chapter 8, verse 10, that there were 120,000 men died that day from the Midian army. Most of them killed each other. Think about this for a moment. Gideon, we first find him in the story, hiding in the wine press, just trying to provide for his family, scared to death. And God says, if you will go with me, I will deliver the nation of Israel, and you will have a great victory. And I see that you are a mighty man of valor. You are a, I see a warrior in you, Gideon. And Gideon has this amazing battle in the nation of Israel. Can you, can you just imagine for a moment what that would have felt like? And so how is the nation of Israel going to respond to this great victory? How is Gideon, the leader of the nation of Israel, going to respond in this great victory? Look at chapter number 8, verse number 22. Again, we've had this amazing victory. They've been in oppression for seven years. They've cried out to God. God hears them. God sends the judge, and Gideon comes, and he leads them to this unbelievable battle. And it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, And your grandsons. So here's the question they're asking. Gideon, will you be our king? Because the nation of Israel sees all the other nations and they have these kings, and that that looks like a good plan. Let's let's do that. And and remember, we're as I already said, we're about 110 years from when the nation of Israel is gonna again cry out for a king, and they're gonna ask for a king, and God warns them, Samuel warns them, and, and they get Saul. 
And remember what Samuel said to God? He, he felt, Samuel felt like the people of Israel were rejecting him because they wanted a king and not Samuel. And what, what did God tell Samuel? They have not rejected you. They've rejected me. And so as they asked this question of Gideon, it is a slap in the face to God who was the one that delivered them and God who was the one that was ruling over them. Gideon, we want you to be your king and, and we want your sons and your grandsons. And so it's the question they ask. But then they make a, a declaration. The rest of verse 22. For you, for Gideon, you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. And God pared the army down from 32,000 to 300 so they wouldn't steal the glory. And what does the nation of Israel say? Gideon, would you be our king? In other words, rejecting God as their ruler. Gideon, you have given us the victory. In other words, stealing the glory of God. And so how is Gideon going to respond? Verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Isn't that a great answer from Gideon? I wish the story stopped there. I wish that was in conclusion. Because Gideon responds to the question with the proper answer. God is your ruler, not man. But let's keep reading. Uh, he says, I will not rule over you. Verse 24, then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you. And here's where the story turns. That each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And then it goes on to verse 26 to talk about how much gold that was and how much money that would mean. Here, here's what's interesting. Gideon may not have wanted the responsibility of the king, but he did want the riches and the glory of a king. And the one thing that God did not want him to take, he took. And, and the rest of the chapter describes what Gideon would live, the lifestyle of king, king. Even though he says, no, I don't want to be, God is going to rule over you, and it sounded so great, and yet then he says, well, he takes all these wives and has 70 sons. He has a concubine. He, he takes all the plunder from the battle, and he lives as if he were the king. And we can learn a lot about his attitude and his perspective by understanding what he named his son. One of his sons he named Abimelech. And what does the name Abimelech mean? My father is king. And it seems to me, as much as I want to cheer for Gideon, that he stole the glory of God. And although he said, I don't want to be king, he acted like he was. The story continues, and it says there, Gideon made it, all the gold, on all the, in verse 27, he made it into an ephod and set it up in the city Ophrah. Before we keep reading, I, I want to explain just for a moment what, it, what is an ephod. Or an ephod was a garment, and it was a decorative garment that a priest would wear, and it was to represent how the priest could hear from God so that the people could know the will of God. And, and so it seems like this is a great idea to take from what God delivered them from, the oppression, to take the plunder of that and make an ephod so they could know the will of God, so they could hear the voice of God. 
And we see the rest of the story that what he intended is not really what was correct. In other words, let me say it this way. We can be sincere, but if we are sincere in our disobedience, well, it's still disobedience. Similar to what Nathan said, that we can, we can be fearful and still be faithful, we can be sincere and still be wrong. Because, let's, let's unpack this for a moment, the ephod was for who? The priest, not for Gideon. And Gideon takes what is not his, he makes what doesn't belong to him, and he takes a responsibility that God never gave him. He takes the ephod, and, and, and uh, it wasn't for him. It says that he took it to his city, Ophrah, and that's not even where it was supposed to be. It's direct disobedience. The ephod was for the priest, and it was supposed to be in Shiloh at this time, not in Ophrah, and not for Gideon. I, now, I want, and I want so desperately to, to think that Gideon, uh, Gideon had good intentions, that he was doing this so that the people could hear from God, so that the people could understand the will of God. But I must be completely honest with you this morning to realize it doesn't matter what your intentions are. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. If you go against what God's word says, you are wrong. It doesn't matter what your feelings are. Because we are living in a culture where feelings seem to trump fact. Facts should always come first. Facts should not follow our feelings. Our feelings should follow the facts. And so although it seems like a great idea, I'm going I'm to create this garment so that we can know and, and understand the will of God, it's not the way it's supposed to be done. Sincere disobedience is still disobedience. Look at the rest of the verse in verse 27. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon into his house. It's so, I'll be honest, this week has just been a struggle for me reading this chapter over and over. It's just depressing to me. Because we saw Gideon was hiding in the wine press. God sees Gideon, and I see a mighty warder in you, and I can deliver you. I can deliver the nation of Israel through you, and, and this, have this great, great, amazing victory. And Gideon, seemingly with good intentions, does the wrong thing. And I take a step back and think about my own life. What in my life am I sincere about? I have good intentions with, but am I being disobedient? And look what it causes the nation of Israel to play the harlot. Gideon, just a few chapters ago, remember? Nathan talked about it. He went into his, uh, the, the image where his father had raised up, and he tore it down. Even though he was fearful, he was faithful. He tore the image of Baal down. And, and now, here we are, two chapters later, he has created another image. And I think it's worse. Because there's this pretense that this is an image that represents God. It's sad because an ephod was known as a garment for the priest to hear and know the will of God. And as tradition continues from this point on, ephod actually becomes known as just this generic term of a false god. 
And under the pretense of being godly, under the pretense of worshiping God, he sets up a false image. What he had just torn down. And the cycle of disobedience continues. It says there's a snare to Hammond and the entire nation. The next few verses uh, talk about the 40 years. They, they, they enjoyed 40 years of peace. But it gets really sad in verse number 33. Look at verse number 33, chapter 8. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals. And they made Baal Perith their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of their enemies on every side. Gideon failed his people. And for 40 years they enjoyed peace. What what a sad statement. So it was, as soon as Gideon died. The people went right back to what they were doing. So three points of application this morning. The first is this, that success can lead to pride and complacency. Success can lead to pride and complacency. Gideon had a great attitude when God first approached him. I can't do it, God. I can't do it. And God says, I'll be with you. Okay, if you're with me, I can do it. And then it seems like Gideon is filled with pride Because he did not refute. He did not tell the people. Remember the question they asked, will you be our king? He said, no. Remember the declaration they made? You have saved us. You have delivered us. And Gideon answers the question, well, I'm not going to be your king. But he never says, it wasn't me that delivered you. It was God that delivered you. And success can easily lead us to pride and complacency. Now, I'm going to let you for the rest of the week and today just kind of think through, how does this apply in my life? But I want to take a moment just to think uh, in our own church. How could this play out in our church or any church for that matter? Now, yesterday we, uh, we got to have a service for Frank Mercer and, and Frank and Verda Mercer. They've been members of this church uh, for 66 years. 66 years. Can you imagine that? Do you know how much change they've been through in the last 66 years in this church? They've been married for, they've been married for 67 years. When they joined the church, the church was changing their name. They were relocating. They changed from Faith Baptist Church uh, to Morningside Baptist Church. They went from that transition to relocate a little farther south to become Hallmark Baptist Church. And then several years later, they relocated to this spot. You know, when I moved here in 1997, you know what was on this property? Grass. That's about it. And a lots and lots of rocks. And you know, for a church, for this church specifically, it could be easy for us to be filled with pride and complacency. Look what we have done. Look what we have built. And I'm, I'm thankful that the generation before me did not become filled with pride or complacent. But I pray that this generation will not be filled with pride and complacency. Because look what happens. Gideon, for 40 years, they enjoy the victory 
but as soon as he died, the people went back to the bells. Pride can lead, uh, success can lead to pride and complacency. Number two, idols come in all shapes and sizes. Idols come in all shapes and sizes. Think about this ephod for a moment. They just tore down the image of Baal, but now they've replaced just another false god. And I want us to think for a moment this, this statement, this idea here. A good thing can become a bad thing when it takes our focus off the main thing. Let me explain that for a minute. We, as, uh, as followers of Christ, God has told us in his word, we should work. And if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. That's what the scripture is very clear on. Work is good. But work in our life can be an idol. Because a good thing can become a bad thing when it takes our focus off the main thing. What about a sports? I love sports. Not very many people in the room, I don't think, probably love sports as much as I do. And I loved watching my kids play sports. And I think sports are good for kids because I think you can learn character. I think you can learn how that life is not always fair. And, and I think you can learn how to lose, and hopefully you learn how to win as well. I, I remember when we were in first grade, and my, my dad would tell the story how that he put my—I have a twin brother, and we were very competitive, and, and it led to a lot of interesting things. But he put us into soccer so that we could learn how to lose. And you know what happened that first year in soccer? We never lost. Pretty good. The lesson was not learned, trust me. I think, I think those things are good. But let's think for a moment. A good thing can become a bad thing when it takes our focus off the main thing. I learned a lot of lessons in sports. My kids learned a lot of lessons in sports. But you know the most important lessons they learned? was what I taught them about God's word. What will have the lasting impact? Idols come in all shapes and all sizes. Number three, we must pass, our, we must pass on our faith to the next generation. A generation without regeneration is degeneration. If we do not pass our faith on to our children, to the next generation, will it be said of us what it said of Gideon? And so it was, as soon as he died, the children of Israel went right back to the false gods. And I think about this generation, as I talked about Frank Inverted Mercer, and I look out this morning, I see people who have been a part of this church for years and years. I think of John Martin back there and, and Margaret, his wife. Years and years they spent working in this church, and, and Jerry and Mary Crumpton. That generation, like Frank Inverted Mercer and A.M. and Juana E. Irwin, Harold Christian, who's sitting right here, who sacrificed so much so that we could be in this building. But why did they do that? It wasn't just to have a nice building. It was because they understood that the mission of the church has always been to lead people to find and follow Jesus. 
Think for a moment how different church is than it was in 1954 when Frank and Verda Mercer joined this church. At the time, they were meeting in a tent. And why would this generation be willing to go through all these changes? Change location, change names, we're, we're, we're tired of this, you know, all the things that change. Because they weren't complacent. Because they didn't have idols. Because they wanted to pass the faith to the next generation. And shame on us, shame on me, if I will enjoy the grace of God, but I won't share the grace of God. Shame on me if I will enjoy the sacrifice of Christ, but I won't sacrifice for Christ. And we have a great opportunity before us this next week. There's an opportunity for us. We, we've made some decisions that we're going to keep the two services, right? And, and, and because of that, there's going to be some changes. There's going to be some differences. You're going you're to look next Sunday across the room, and that person that usually is in church in that normal, normal seat, they're going to be in connect group because they made a choice to go to a different time than you did. We're, we're so-and-so. And some of you are going to go to connect group at 1030 and go to worship at 915. And every time there's opportunities, there's also other opportunities, right? There's going to be change and tension and an opportunity for me to gripe about it, right? I mean, let's just be real this morning. Well, so why would we make those changes? Because we want more people to find and follow Jesus. You know, there are thousands of people in this neighborhood who don't know Jesus. And shame on me for not being willing to make a few sacrifices so that we could have room and a space for people to connect. You know, we want to lead people to find and follow Jesus, but we want to, we're wanting to move people from the crowd into community so they can become the core. And so offering two services and offering connect groups at both times, you know what that allows? It allows more people to serve. It allows more opportunity for people to connect. It allows more people to get into discipleship and to draw closer to God and to each other. It also allows more opportunity. We need more of you to say, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice an hour a week or I'm going to sacrifice an hour a month to be on the connection team and welcome people. I, I'm going to sacrifice an hour a week or an hour a month to, to go into Hallmark Kids and help pass the faith to the next generation. So what's the next step for you? Fearful disobedience, uh, excuse me, fear, fearful obedience is still faithful obedience. Would you be willing to take the next step of faith? What is God asking you to do so that this church could lead more people to find and follow Jesus? I pray for me that I won't be like Gideon, that success won't lead me to pride and complacency, that I won't rob the glory of God. I pray that God would reveal the idols in my life because we all have them that I would confess. And I pray that we as a church would reach the next generation who doesn't know Jesus. Would you close your eyes for a moment this morning?
And I want you, as I've asked you to do, process for yourself. Are there idols in my heart? A good thing can become a bad thing when it takes my focus off the main thing. You know, there's some sacrifices you could make in your own life that may open the opportunity for someone to find and follow Jesus. And would you, would you be willing to make the sacrifice? You know, we serve a good God. He's faithful, even when we're not. He's good, even when we don't see it. And I pray that the goodness of God would lead us to be willing to sacrifice for the next generation. God, we we are blessed to be in this place, and Lord, we are grateful for the generations that went before us, that have given, that have sacrificed, that have prayed for this place. And God, I pray that we as a church, that we as individuals would make the same decisions for the sake of the gospel We'll be willing to go all in, to guard our hearts from pride and complacency, to guard our hearts from the idols that so easily ensnare us, and that we would sacrifice for the next generation. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you are so good to us. I'm going to ask you to stand with us this morning as we close out the service and worship.